This message is entitled Literal Interpretation and is given by Dr. Earl Rodmacher. In the process of communication, we move to the fourth link now. We're skipping the second and third links, not because they are unimportant or unexciting, because frankly they present some of the most exciting material in the providence of God that you can deal with. The link of transmission of the original text into copy is an exciting study to behold. The whole process of textual criticism. Just a one example of the Isianic scroll that comes out of the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in 1947 is exciting in itself. I think you're aware of the fact that Prior to 1947, the oldest manuscript that we had of Isaiah was of the Masoretic text in 900 A.D. When that little Arab boy, who happened to be walking along the Dead Sea Scrolls, along the Dead Sea Shores, <laughs> inadvertently threw a rock up into a cave and made a hollow sound and split open a clay pot up there, which unveiled a moldy-looking roll, not a bread roll, a roll of material on which was written something that he didn't know anything about. When he did that, that boy, if he'd have been a bit smarter, would never have turned that into the Jews because he'd have been a rich man today. But not knowing what he had his hands on, he turned it in, and that became the famous Dead Sea Scroll find. And the Isianic scroll that was contained among the Dead Sea Scrolls was dated at about 150 B.C., meaning that the text of Isaiah, the copy that we have now, as of 1947, is a thousand years older than what we had prior to 1947. And yet when you put the two together, when you put the Masoretic text alongside of the Isianic scroll of the Dead Sea Scroll, there is substantially no difference in a thousand years of transmission. There is no doctrinal variance, and there is little verbal variance. The whole study of the text is thrilling. When the King James Version was developed, they had eight basic manuscripts from which to work most of which were from the 4th century onward. Today, we have 13,000 manuscripts in whole or in part, in Greek or in Latin, from the first four centuries of the history of the Church. And yet, when you put today's translations together, or I should say, when you put today's Greek texts together with those of previous years, there is very, very little variance. Westcott and Hort affirm that there is less than one one-thousandth of a chance of error or variance. That would be about one word per page of the New Testament. And there, they say, there is in no case a doctrine involved, which is not otherwise plainly substantiated in the Word of God. 
So for all practical purposes, as a result of God's providential care in the process of transmission, we have today, even though it is not the original and even though it is not infallible, we have for all practical purposes an inspired Bible for all practical purposes. Please understand that the doctrine of inspiration applies technically to the autographer, that is, the original writing. But God has so marvelously worked in transmission that there is a connectionalism in the transcripts of the New Testament that is unheard of in any other work of antiquity. The Bible is unlike any book in all the world in its transmission. And that's a fact that you can handle. And when you're talking to people who claim to be intelligent people, who have not read the Word of God, and who are seeking for truth, you've really got something to say for them. Because a person who claims to be seeking for truth and has not read the one book that has attracted more attention than any other book in all the world is not demonstrating very much intelligence. That's one whole area of study. Another area of study is the area of translation. Not only is the Bible the first book to ever be translated, the Septuagint version, but it's the most translated book in all the world by far and away. It was the first book to ever be published, the Gutenberg Bible, the first book that was ever run off a printing press of movable type. Not only is it the most published book in all the world and the most translated book in all the world, it's the most retranslated book in all the world. So that in English alone, you have more than 500 translations of the New Testament. Going back to Wycliffe, Tyndale, Coverdale, Geneva Bible, Breach's Bible, Authorized Version, British Revised Version, American Standard Version, Revised Standard Version, New American Standard Version, Williams, Weymouth, Wheat, Moffat, Goodspeed, Amplified, Simplified, Clarified, so on and so forth. <laughs> 500. What is it? How can any book be so important as to attract that kind of attention? And oftentimes from people who are really not that concerned about walking after God. No book in all the world like it. Now again, you could spend hours and hours talking about translation. The Bible's been translated today, what, into 1,500 languages approximately? Wycliffe says 2,000 ago, something like that. No book, no book in all of history compares to it. I submit to you... F.F. Bruce's book, The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? as a good small book to study through this particular issue. Now, we're having to leave the link of transmission, not because it is unimportant for many people sweat to get this book to us today. And though you may pick on the scribes a great deal, you better remember that, thank God, there were some scribes who were willing to be scribes, or you wouldn't have any Bible today. 
who went through that exhausting procedure, laboriously copying letter after letter after letter after letter, going back and counting them after they had done a line, putting the number at the end of the line, starting the next line and doing the same thing, going all the way through a page, counting all of the letters over again, and if the two did not come out exactly the same, starting all over again, in order that you may have a Bible. And the exhausting work of somebody else translating the Bible into your language on the pain of death. For it was not a popular thing when the Bible was being put into English to take it out of the language of the clergy, Latin, and put it into English. There were those who steadfastly fought that in that day. I don't know if I have handy here or not the article out of Christianity Today that gives the account of the Spanish cardinal who led the fight of about 150 of the clergy against putting the Bible in the language of the people because they said, if you put the Bible in the language of the people, you will destroy the Bible. And when I look at the situation, I have to sympathize with that kind of thinking. Because I really honestly feel that the Bible has suffered more from the lovers of the Bible than it has from the haters of the Bible. People who love God and love the Bible have probably twisted it more than those who could care less because they don't see any authority in it anyway, so why should they twist it? Therefore, there was the feeling, don't put the Bible in the language of the people. Now, I'm glad they did because the Bible teaches us that the people are believer priests. And the right of interpretation is not limited to the clergy, even though that's the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. Catholicism teaches that the clergy alone has the right of interpretation. The people do not have the right of interpretation. They encourage you to read the Bible, the confraternity edition in the front promises you an indulgence of three years released from purgatory if you read the Bible faithfully and spiritually with the right attitude for 15 minutes. But any sane Roman Catholic knows that you can get the same reward for saying the rosary once, and you can say the rosary many times in 15 minutes, so if you have a simple understanding of mathematics, it would be a far better thing to say the rosary many times in 15 minutes and multiply that times three than to merely read the Bible faithfully for 15 minutes and get only three years out of purgatory. doesn't take too much to figure that out. But the people are not allowed to interpret the Bible. That's the right of the clergy. We believe the Bible doesn't teach that. We believe the Bible teaches that the ordinary believer is a believer priest. And therefore, he has no necessity that he be taught. Now, some people rip that out of context, too, and say, I don't have to be taught by anybody. Well, then why did God make a part of the Great Commission teaching? Theology puts both sides together. I have no necessity. That is, I'm not bound to a teacher. I'm not locked into a teacher. But if I've got any sense, I'll listen the teaching from the Word of God and check it out by the Word of God. And why can I check it out? Because I'm a believer priest. But I can also profit by listening. 
So that we need to understand that even though all of these great things have happened in the past, if I, on the fourth link here, am not faithful in interpretation, no matter how good the original writing was, and no matter how splendid the transmission and translation is, I do not have God's word for me if I don't have God's meaning of God's word. That doesn't change its character as an objective revelation of God. That remains true no matter what I do with it. It sits in judgment over me. But the fact is, I do not have communication from God if I do not have God's meaning for God's word. If I have my meaning for God's word, that is not God's word, and God never promised to bless that. So we're interested not only in the area of inspiration, but in the area of interpretation. And probably this is a more subtle problem with regard to evangelicals than the doctrine of inspiration. Because most of you would have no problem with what I said in the preceding hour about inspiration. But I'll guarantee you that all of you will have problems with what I say in this hour and the next one with regard to interpretation, because there will not be one of us that will not fall guilty before the standards of interpretation, even though we mouth a very strong doctrine of inspiration. Now, let me begin this way by saying one of the things that gets my carnal blood going faster than just about anything else is for someone to make that insipid statement that there are many different interpretations of the Word of God. That says absolutely nothing. When someone wants to challenge one of my interpretations by saying, after all, there are many different interpretations, my simple remark to the person is, brother, you haven't told me a thing. You've just used a cop-out. If you see something wrong with my interpretation, then you specifically tell me wherein I am unfaithful to God's word. Don't tell me there are many different others' interpretations. I could care less about that. Because if you can't show me where I'm wrong, then maybe you better believe what I'm saying. I had the opportunity of speaking to two guys who are running the free college at West Valley College in San Jose. One of them is an atheist and one is a agnostic, was an agnostic. And the one who was an atheist was running the school. And he told me he wanted to get together and he wanted to wrap a while. I said, fine, let's make an appointment. We did that afternoon and I came in. We hadn't been wrapping for very long until I brought to the setting a quotation from the Word of God. He said to me, well, the scripture has many different interpretations. And he didn't know how mad that makes me. <laughs> and I said, okay, friend. You said a moment ago that you wanted me to come in and rap with you. Now, I came in here, but I don't see any presence and I don't see any wrapping paper. I don't have the foggiest idea how we're going to be able to rap. And he looked at me rather quizzically. And he said, well, that's not what I mean. And I said, well, I'm sorry about that, but there are many different interpretations of what you said. And that happens to be the one that I take. So you rap like you want to rap. <laughs> and I'll rap like I want to rap. 
And he said, well, uh, we can't communicate then. Exactly. We can't communicate. Until I take you for what you mean, there is no communication. Now, brother, if you want me to do that with you, then you at least be as fair with the writers of the scripture and you find out what they meant by what they said, not what you want them to mean out of your 20th century environment by what they said. Let's not start off with dishonesty. Let's start off by being honest. And I really think that today that's become one of the most fruitful cop-outs there is. There are many different interpretations because there are not. There is one interpretation of any passage of Scripture, just like there is one interpretation of anything you say, and that is what you mean by what you say. Now, what you mean by what you say may be a compound, complex sentence, and it may not be easily discerned, but it still has one meaning. Now, that starts me off then with the principle that there is one interpretation but many possible applications as long as they are true to the basic interpretation of what the writer meant in his life situation. Now, how am I going to arrive at that one interpretation of each passage of scripture. I believe there are two major areas that I need to give attention to. On the one hand, there are certain prerequisites for interpretation, and then, more important, I suppose, there are certain principles that you must apply. And by the time I get through talking about these prerequisites and principles, you are probably going to begin to say, well, my land, if it takes all of that to understand the word of God, I'll never be able to do it, so I just well give up before I get started. Because I've never had Greek, and I've never had Hebrew, and I've not been to seminary, and on and on, ad infinitum, so you have another kind of a cop-out. You plead Christian agnosticism. Now let me make a comparison for just a minute. Supposing that a multi-millionaire down the way here, make it as big as you want to make it, you know, a hundred million, four billion, supposing you were in Howard Hughes's will, and you got a readout of the will, and you read through that thing, and it was full of legal jargon that you could not understand. You'd have to memorize Webster's on a bridge to understand what he was talking about, and you wade all the way through that thing. But you see your name is there. You recognize that. So you say, well, I've never had courses in law. I don't understand the words they're using. Their English is way over my head. I'm just going to forget all about this, and you throw the will away. Not on your life you wouldn't do that because you're too interested in the almighty dollar to do that. And therefore, if you had to, 
you would go back to night school to learn English, you would memorize Webster's Unabridged Dictionary, you would hire a Philadelphia lawyer, you would get a court stenographer, you would do anything you had to do to find out exactly what you've got coming to you. Now just ask yourself, would you do less with regard to the will of Almighty God? which is called the Old Testament and the New Testament. Are you more interested in what could come to you by way of dollars and cents from another man who's going to die like you are than you are in the will that God has left you that promises spiritual blessings for now and for all eternity, and he wants you to be a partaker in them? Now, that's a pretty good way to test your spirituality. See, that gets the filling of the Spirit right down to the nuts and bolts of the thing in the nitty-gritty world where we live. Now, let me suggest three prerequisites for interpreting the Scripture. The first one is regeneration. The first and most basic requirement for interpreting the Word of God is to be born again. And here is one area that I don't have to exhort you on, do I? Because we're all here. Hopefully we all know Jesus Christ. We've all been born again. But don't underestimate that. For you remember in the passage on Revelation we were talking about, 1 Corinthians 2, 7 to 13, verse 14 talks about the reception of Revelation. And it says this, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness unto him. We already talked about it a little bit. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerning. So that in that passage, Paul says, the natural man, that is a man without Jesus Christ, does not have either the attitude or the aptitude to be an interpreter of the word of God, to receive the revelation. He cannot and he does not. He does not receive it because to him it is insipid, it is foolishness, it is fables fit for children, it is the opiate of the people, it's pie in the sky by and by, and all of the other nice little statements that are made about faith as a crutch for weak people. He does not receive it. He doesn't welcome it. And furthermore, Paul says he can't, because he doesn't have the apparatus. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So as we suggested, I believe, earlier, it would be as difficult for a non-Christian man to give final interpretation to the Word of God as it would be for a blind person to judge a beauty contest, or a deaf person to judge a music contest. They don't have the apparatus. They cannot do it. So I'm not really interested in the conclusions of an unregenerate man as to interpretation of the Word of God. And that's why I have no desire to sit under them, to study under them. They have nothing to say to me because they don't have the first requisite for understanding God's Word. Now, that doesn't mean they can't say a lot to me about management and about worldly wisdom and a lot of other things. We can learn from everybody that we contact. But an unregenerate man has nothing to say to me about spiritual truth. He must be born again. Secondly, he must be spiritual. A man who is born again, but not walking moment by moment in the Spirit of God, 
has no more right to believe that he is accurately communicating the truth and proper meaning of God's word than an unregenerate man. For a carnal man is a man who is submitting himself moment by moment to the devil's thinking anyway. And therefore, that which he acts and that which he thinks is not reliable. A man, therefore, needs to be spiritual. He needs to be a person whose habit of life is to be controlled moment by moment by moment by moment by the Spirit of God. Thirdly, he not only needs to be born again and spiritual, but he needs to be, and this is the one to first, a diligent, tireless student. Too many people, when they graduate from school, say, man, glad that's over. That's the end of books. And for many people, that's exactly the case. They never exercise their pure mental muscles again after that. That ought to be the beginning of books. That ought to be the beginning of study. That should have taught you how to study. And hopefully when a man in preparation for the ministry, finishes his preparation. He is not finished studying. He's only learned how to study the Word of God and been given some basic tools for a lifetime of investigation and the joy of discovery of what God's Word means. So Paul could say to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, Do your diligence, study, to show yourself approved unto God, in order that you might be a workman that has no need to be ashamed because you're rightly dividing the word of truth. And I take it the converse is true there, that if I'm not rightly dividing the word of truth, I have reason to be ashamed before God. Those three things then are basic. Regeneration, spiritual, controlled by the Spirit as a habit of life, and a, being a diligent, tireless student. I emphasize again what I said before, that the Spirit of God was never given to bless empty heads. The Spirit of God is not given to make study needless. He is given to make study effective. All of your study, apart from the enlightenment of the Spirit of God, is going to be greatly depreciated. But... Without that study, the Spirit of God has nothing to enlighten. So both have to be there, and that's why on the chart we've got illumination as the other side of interpretation. Interpretation is your diligent effort to understand by looking at the syntax, the morphology, the word forms, the word relationships, and all the rest, and illumination is that work of the Spirit of God whereby he enlightens you to that which you are studying. Both are there. Now, with those prerequisites before you, there are numerous principles, and I only want to suggest three. One in the next ten minutes, and then one in each of the next two hours. What principles of interpretation are really basic and mandatory to understand God's Word? The first one is the principle of literal interpretation. Literal interpretation. And, as always, we just will start off with a definition. By literal interpretation, 
we simply mean that natural, normal, customary, socially designated meaning of terms. Natural, normal, customary, socially designated meaning of terms. Or, to put it simply, when I ask an audience what they think I mean by literal interpretation, invariably a flock of people respond by saying, well, you believe they mean exactly what they said. And that's right. That's literal interpretation. You say, well, anybody could understand that. All of us believe that. We all practice that. No, you don't. You don't at all. Oftentimes, you find yourself having the writer say what you want him to say, and that's not literal interpretation. Or oftentimes, we find ourselves spiritualizing the text. Spiritualizing is a nice-sounding word for allegorizing. Calvin and Luther had nasty, nasty words to use of allegorization in the Reformation when people used it with regard to the doctrine of salvation. Unfortunately, they didn't cleanse their eschatology like they did their soteriology. They didn't cleanse the doctrine of last things, the doctrine of the millennium. They took the Roman Catholic doctrine of amillennialism right over into Protestant Reformed theology. But basically, they brought to the light how wrong allegorization of Scripture is. Now you say, well, what is allegorization? Let me give you a good example. This is taken from Ram's book on Protestant Biblical Interpretation, talking about literal interpretation. He says, in history, for example, when we read of Paul Revere's famous rides, we take it as such. That is, as Paul Revere's famous ride, and not as conscience riding to the rescue of virtue at the approach of temptation. But very, very often, people will pull that kind of a stunt with regard to the Word of God. Some time ago, there was a sermon in Christianity Today entitled The Four Cardinal Christian Virtues. The sermon is an old one, but the man didn't give any credit for it. Actually, the same sermon was preached by Philo many, many centuries ago. It was obvious he got it from there. But he used the text in Genesis that talks of the Garden of Eden and the four rivers that flowed out of it. And preaching that text, he said, the Garden of Eden is the center of virtue. And the rivers that flow out of it are the great cardinal Christian virtues. And then he preaches message on these great cardinal Christian virtues. Now, the fact of the matter is that the Garden of Eden was a garden localized at a spot on the earth that Adam was given charge of and told to keep it and to tend it. And the rivers that flowed out of it were H2O, water. And they were not some occasion for allegorization of the text in order to read into the Bible some nice thoughts that a man had, but that they didn't have any authority, so he had to get some authority for them. So he got a scriptural text to buttress them being allegorized. I pick up a message on an ordination sermon on loose him and let him go. An ordination sermon. 
the words that Jesus gave with regard to Lazarus. Unwrap it and let him go. Now he's using that for ordaining a man to the ministry and preaches a message, an ordination message on loose him and let him go. He's made his preparation for preaching, so now unravel him, loose him, and let him go. God help us if that's the best we can do on interpretation of his word. The word of God is not a bunch of toys to play with. This is God's word. It is true. And God didn't ask me to add my little spiritual tidbit to it so that it would have some power because it didn't have any the way he wrote it. Now you say, well, yeah, I can buy that, that generally speaking you interpret the Bible literally. But you certainly don't mean, do you, that you interpret the whole Bible literally always. And I respond, yes, that's what I believe. You say, oh, you're pulling my leg now. I know, for the most part, but not everything. Yes, everything. You say, well, you mean to tell me that when the Bible says that the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout all the earth, that you really believe that there are two eyeballs of God that are rotating the earth? No, I don't believe that because I'm not a wooden-headed letterist. And that would be wooden-headed letterism, not literal interpretation. Anyone who has any acquaintance at all with literary style understands that you can speak in a plain literal way or a figurative literal way. That is, you can speak without figures of speech or with figures of speech. And one is not less literal than the other. They are both literal. In other words, if we were putting those four words on a screen and we have on the one hand plain literal and we have on the other hand figurative literal, figurative is not antithetical to literal. Figurative is in antithesis to plain. This would be called denotative language. This would be called connotative language. One is without a figure of speech, the other is with a figure of speech, and we use both of them all day long, every day, without meaning that we are trying to be non-literal. For example, when John the Baptist was given the job of introducing Jesus Christ to the world, supposing that were your job, we have a hard enough time introducing visiting speakers, you know, and saying what supposedly is the right thing to be said, and they're not nearly as important as Jesus Christ. But supposing you had to introduce Jesus Christ, how long would it take you? It didn't take John very long. What did he say? He said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And that was it. But there were some very specific things he said. He didn't say, Behold, a Lamb. He changed the article from an indefinite article to a definite article. Verbal inspiration. 
because those Jews that he was talking about knew all about Elam, Elam, Elam. They knew about millions of them that they had offered on Jewish altars, and not one of them had ever taken away one cent. And what was the thing that most concerned the Jew? The thing that most concerned them was, when is the Messiah going to come? When is the Deliverer going to come? And therefore, the most important thing that John the Baptist could say to them is, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. A wooden-headed letterist would have to say that he was talking about a four-footed furry mammal of the family Canide. But he wasn't talking about a woolly sheep. But every Jew knew what he was talking about. They knew, if they were listening, that John was saying this is the end to all animal sacrifices in preparation for the lamb that would take away the sin of the world. Now, I want to suggest to you that you couldn't say as much in several pages of description as John said with one little tiny figure of speech. So that a figure of speech is not something lesser in importance by way of a literary device, nor is it less vivid or less graphic. It is more graphic, it is more vivid, and it is just as literal. But it's not always as easy to find the literal meaning of the figure of speech as it is to find the literal meaning of straight prose. So it taxes your ingenuity a bit at times. And saying that, I remember a Chinese student that was in my class one time, Philip Lee, who is now with Evangelized China Fellowship. And Philip used to sit there in class with a Chinese-English dictionary trying to take down lectures. You think you're having a hard time? You should have been with Philip. And he would go back and forth and back and forth in that Chinese-English dictionary. And then one day I made this statement. I'll never forget it. I said about somebody that they had kicked the bucket. And Philip went back and forth for a while, and he looked up at me, he looked back down, closed the thing up, put it down, he put his pencil down, he gave up. Kick the bucket. Now where do I go in my dictionary for that? Now I wasn't being less literal in what I was saying. I was being just as literal. I was being more graphic, more vivid, because most Americans know what we mean when we say somebody kicked the bucket. They died. But Philip didn't know. Now what was Philip going to have to do? He was going to have to find out in my idiom, by my culture, what that meant. And I've got to do the same thing with the Bible. Some of the figures are very clear. So when Jesus says, Herod that fox, I don't have to ask you to study for a while in what Jesus meant by Herod that fox. What did he mean, literally? Fly? Cunning, crafty, we've all got it. But there were some figures that were not quite as common. Out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. What does that mean? So we've got to find out what the figure of speech means. But we always are controlled by the principle that there is always the literal interpretation of the word of God, which is the historical grammatical setting in which it was said. And if you don't find that, you pervert the word of God.